Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made three low-budget feature films of varying success, and I went to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length projects on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the kinds of conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. Um, when I first decided that I wanted to sit down and talk to filmmakers, the one that leapt to mind was the guy sitting across from me. Uh, his name is C.E. Courtney, and he's from some backwater town <laughs> in the south of the United States. <laughs> Baton Rouge, it's a state capital. <laughs> Which he leads with. <laughs> um, we met three years ago. Uh, I had, he was a professor in an MFA class of mine. It was actually the workshop class. Um, which kind of turned into very quickly into like I really respond well and quickly to people who take an active interest, an individualistic interest in their students. And this was a guy who was like, "I want to meet with each one of you," which I guess was was novel to me. But it, but exactly like, as somebody who wants to maybe teach young filmmakers someday something that I, that I would do as well. I want to actually hear what you're doing because I think that so much of critique has to do with what do you want to do, and and how can we. How can we really figure out how to do that for you? So we sat down, told him about my life, told me a little bit about his life, and then we saw this hawk. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on a squirrel. Yeah, yeah. It really just like like in a really gory fashion, mm -hmm. ripping apart a squirrel. Mm -hmm. um, and we were like, okay, I think we might get, keep in contact. <laughs> but then we took another – I did another class, and then from that point on, it was really just collaboration, and it's kind of turned into uh, – uh, CE showed me a film that really kind of um, had a, a pretty big impact on me, actually, at the, at the time, and then it continues to now, and, and to the point that when I you know, tell people, they say, what are you working on with him? Just the first couple of words uh, capture interest. And essentially, it was the, the film was called Nervous White Boy. It was CE's uh, MFA project, the, the MFA thesis, 1989 at the AFI. At Tyler School of Art. You weren't which at is, AFI yet. No, yeah. which is Temple University's art school. Okay. And not an expected thesis. That was not where you were going. No. Tell the, a, a lot of this starts, in my mind, with Nervous White Boy. Okay. I feel like, it, it, or, or, or does it start earlier? Cre you know, your creative life. Uh, well, you know, I was a still photographer, and my MFA was uh, going to be in fine art still photography. And, um, but I had sort of hit a wall with still photography. I, I still shoot a lot and I still love it a lot, but at that point I was sort of adrift. And one of my fellow grad students one day said, you know, CE, you have such a love of narrative and it's clear that's what you're trying to get out of your images, but still photography doesn't seem to be helping you very much. Like, why don't you go down to main campus and take a filmmaking class? And I was like, huh, wish I'd thought of that. Yeah. But okay. And Had you been a fan of film at that point? Well, yeah. But, you know, as much as you're, I'm a fan of my own dreams, you know, and yeah. it's like you go and it's like the suspended animation. And But I was never one of those, like, you know, academic, like, take them apart. And, you you know, weren't studying well, film yet. No, no, not even, like, personally, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But started, like, with the filmmaking thing. and But I, I went home because my sister called. 
and told me that our uncle had been attacked in his bed as he lay asleep out in the country. Um, and no one knew who the perpetrator was, um, but he was a 67-year-old man with Parkinson's disease, and someone went into his house in the middle of the night and picked up a shotgun and bent the barrel over his skull with several blows. And she called me and told me I needed to come home, that he was on life support, and as soon as they pulled the plug, we would have to put his body in the ground, and they, I was requested to be a pallbearer. So I went home to, to do that. But in the moment of that phone call, my sister was already assuming that the murderer would turn out to be black. In fact, my sister is a great detective. If you ever need the services of a great detective, I'll hook you up. <laughs> because in her mind, it was the kids that mowed his lawn. The junior high kids that mowed his lawn. Well, you can imagine what color their skin is. Right, right. So leaping to conclusions early on. Yeah, and I was praying, literally, you know, as an agnostic atheist, I was already praying, like... Just searching for any kind of luck. Yeah, that, it would, that this would not turn out to be the case. But on the afternoon after we put his body in the ground, the sheriff pulled up. It was like a scene out of a big Hollywood movie. You know, the guy pulls up and announces to all of us sitting rocking in rocking chairs on the front porch where some of the nervous white boys shot, significant sections of it, actually, that, you know, they caught us in, the, in yeah. Jesse's car, asleep in the car in New Orleans. And they got him back up here in the jailhouse. And so it's... so. You had you only recently started to look at, at films and your own life in film. This incredibly emotional event takes place. Right. It's unexpected. Hmm. It's out of nowhere. Right. Um, you're so, it's all of a sudden thrust into not just this kind of you know family death emergency, but also the you know there, there there's there's a, a family p- political battle that can't really be aired out. Because you know you're, you're you're a guy who's who's really kind of opposed to all this stuff, but you can't like the, the event has enabled your family to think and feel any way they want. You can't. It, it's insensitive at this point to to chime in with that with you know your politics. But it's at, at what point? And this is this is what really struck me about you really early on when we were in our class was when you wanted to actually talk about the ethics of your own filmmaking. Which is going to get into the project we've we've been working on quite a bit. But what was the point at which you said, you know what, I'm going to have to take out a video camera. And they're going to see me with a video camera pointing it at them. And you, how, how do you even prepare to explain that? Do you ask their permission, hey, I'm going to make a movie about what's going on here? Or does a camera just follow them? It's, uh, I love the saying, it's a lot easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. Yeah. I mean, people will just shut you down you know, out of control issues, but if you just seize the control and make people tell you to stop, I mean, you feel like an asshole doing it, but, you know, any street shooter video still, anything, you kind of have to be, like, willing to take what's in front of you, take it. I mean, this gets into, this is something I've talked about with a few of the other people I've, I've sat down with, which is, I, it's fun to remember back to, uh, I mean, I'm still I'm still very driven, very passionate about all my projects. But it's fun to think back to those initial projects where, you know, no matter how dumb they were, no matter how amateur they were, if I didn't finish them, I was going to die. <laughs> like if I didn't make this movie, I-, I was not me. You know, and it sounds like there's something kind of similar going on with this, but it's not quite the same thing because it's not you gearing up, planning, rallying the troops. But there's still that element of like. You know something? I have to whip out this camera. I have to. 
Yeah. Well, there's the you, you you asked sort of like when did you know you had to do this? Yeah. And it was actually as the words were coming out of his mouth that they caught someone they thought was the person who did it and that he was black. It was then, and we didn't own a video camera. The, mm. One of the very beginning bits of the movie is, well, Mama, you got a video camera. That's because we had just walked out of the store have, having bought it, put a tape in, put a battery on, praying that the battery from the brand-new camera had enough charge to shoot something, and started shooting like with it literally out of the box. Yeah. Early on in the movie, you're... you're uh you do speak to your mom about it. You, you sort of address the camera a little bit um, in the car. Mm-hmm. You're like, you happy I'm making this movie? Of course, she's on camera. So, <laughs> yeah. so the answer is, is uh, slightly manipulated maybe. But she, she seemed okay with it. There are those, those, uh, those moments in the film where she's like, stop making a fool out of me, which, which we really look at mm-hmm. uh, later on. But, um, but, but talk a little bit about how much time was that shot over, first of all? Two and a half weeks. Okay. So it's really a snapshot. Yeah. Um, You've been a still photographer up to this point. But you would become uh, a a, a well-worked cinematographer, I would say, and and, and an expert cinematographer. I've been on the soundstage with this guy. He's an expert cinematographer. Uh, But Nervous White Boy is probably your, your, right now, you're kind of what you're best known for. Movie doesn't look like anything. Yeah. Movie's just people. Right. Yeah, it's... I actually was attempting to craft it as a home movie about tragedy. Mm-hmm. And while I was shooting it, the last thing I wanted to do was to have it look very studied and aesthetically pleasing. Um, I did want it to look, you know, somewhat amateurishly shot. But if you actually look at how it's shot, you realize there's a, a mindset, a, a perspective involved. So my nephew Casey was two at the time running around in diapers. And so it gave me. Uh, two for the price of one by holding the camera at my hip and just pointing it in the direction of someone who was speaking and roughly centering them in the frame. I wasn't looking through the viewfinder. I didn't have a camera up to my eye. And people are so much less put off if they're looking at both your eyes. Yes. And there's a camera down at your hip, and yeah, the little red light's blinking, but they're looking at you and talking to you. The other benefit was that was Casey's POV looking up at the adult world around him. Right. You know? So circumstances kind of snapped into place, really. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm, I'm very aware of that when I watch that movie. It's not really just a matter of, like, C's got to keep it low or else somebody's going to scream at him. Right. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it does feel more... And Casey's really a, a central point. And Casey's my age, actually. That's the, that's the thing I always have to remember. I'm like, isn't that weird? Because you've known him <laughs> since he was an infant, but you know me as kind of a, a collaborator and artist, so that's kind of odd. Um, but d- d- does your family see the movie around that time? I know, I know your mother did. You know, there are people that still haven't seen it. There are people who will never be able to see it. My father, for instance, who's yeah. dead. Um, and yeah, it, I actually didn't share it much and meaning not only with my family, but also with the larger world. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very hard to do. And, and I had a mentor at the time who was playing a role with me, unlike what I'm doing with you, because he was Southern and helping me come to grips with my Southernness. And, you know, turn me on to the works of Ross McElwee, Sherman's March, Time Indefinite, Bright Leaves, that are like a, a beautiful trilogy of personal documentary. Um, 
with a crafted persona, Ross McElwee talks about, like how his persona is as a filmmaker is crafted. Mm. Um, and so he's I, looking to match you up with other Southern artists, and and right, and and so you know, as as that unfolded, he basically saw how tough it was for me making it because it was just gut wrenching. And I came to understand catharsis because here I am in the editing suite every day watching my mother sob at her dead brother's graveside, whereas, yeah. whereas she was moving on with her life. Right. And, you know, I finally had to put it away for a little while. I was kind of going crazy. And, and then, we, should, we should really emphasize this was linear tape-to-tape days. Yeah, this so, was shot on regular 8 video, offline on SVHS to SVHS, and then online on three-quarter SP. So for anybody who's like 10 listening to this... <laughs> yeah, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's two... Think of it as you've got two VCRs, if you even know what that is. It, it, it <laughs> plays a VHS tape. And, and it's really literally you, you queue up to the point that you want to make a cut, um, and you, you kind of pause it there, you dub that to the next tape, and then you move on, and you do that linearly. If you make an an error or you need to make an adjustment or you need to go back and change it. You got to do all those cuts all over again. So writing down time code becomes crucial. Otherwise, you know, you're just shooting in the dark. So imagine here's a guy who's watching family tragedy again and again and again, and then he fucks up a cut (laughs) 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 and then he's got to do it all over again. Uh, So that, I remember that striking me big time. And I also talking about the ethics a bit, there were obviously, you know, part of what makes the the film compelling, aside from the fact that like that you're part of this family and 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 you're obviously at odds in that, and you're barely in the thing. I mean, I remember being like, "Well, where is he?" <laughs> you know, it, it, like visually, you know, walks by a camera now and again, but we hear you on a on a phone recording right. um, that you're sort of you could be calling yourself, you could be kind of it, it could be a personal memo. It doesn't really matter, but it's kind of this running journal throughout the film. Um, but you're, you're also, uh, while you're placing emphasis on Casey, you're kind of showing, you know, you're looking at him and you're hearing maybe some racist talk in the background. And, um, and for that reason, it becomes fuzzy and a little dangerous to ever manipulate that moment, to, to, to ever say that something happened that didn't really happen. Mm -hmm. And I loved, loved, loved that you... Um, and I don't even think you have anything to cop to, honestly, at the end of the day. But I love that you were looking to cop to something in front of our class. Because here's, here's a group of filmmakers who should be asking themselves questions. And to watch somebody model by example asking himself a question, you know, 20 years later, what do you guys think? You know, there were two, we'll talk about the two moments. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the one that's, uh, I think, the, the, the bigger of the two for me is that my sister is... <clears throat> driving and and ranting about the person and what she believes about the person that was in in custody um and i have a shot of casey in his car seat as if he's in the back seat listening to her at that moment and he was not actually in the car listening at that moment um i have no doubt that he's been in the car with her many moments with similar talk and you know, did I feel good about it? No. Did I feel like I was ultimately telling a lie in the bigger picture? No. Yeah. You were telling an accurate. It was accurate as far as you were concerned. But it's it's an important question to for any documentarian to ask um, because man is that easy. You know, you, you, if, if you're not responsible about that. Yeah. Oh, it's it's 
the big word in in our society's days is spin. Yeah. You know, it, it just, you could spin someone any way you want. I still look at the film and and think about well, what did I leave out that yeah. would have made me look bad? What did I not say that would have made me sound bad? Mm. You know, it's I, all about framing. When I was uh, when I was in Australia a few weeks back, I was uh, it was it was this really cool venue where they had three cinemas um, and they had an outdoor bar. And so it was really nice because if you, if you got a festival pass, you could just go check out any movie you wanted during the day. Or you could just skip one and hang out in the bar and talk to film students, which I love doing, obviously. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> um, and there was this one guy who had just gotten into film. I think, he, I think his background was in photography, so he was all about the, you know, the, the, the honest image and what. He was really kind of into it. And uh, and he's he he had just watched my film, which was a whole lot of dialogue and you know people talking. I do think there are quiet, you know, visual moments in the film, but in general, it's kind of the 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 camera is another just another person. There's a little human motion and everything. And he said he's he's telling me he's like uh, English was a second language, so it's it's coming out a little slow. But he's like words are a lie, but the the image does not lie. And I was like, oh, yes, it does, sir. <laughs> <laughs> like, just the amount of time you let it hang, you know, how far away you are. Are we even seeing their eyes, like you say? The image lies, lies, lies. And it, I mean, it... it particularly through editing. Particularly through editing, yeah. I mean, just, just the ability to escape a moment or to dwell on a moment or, or whatever. Did you find, you know, you're saying you wanted to do this kind of this... Uh, the home movie that you never see, I guess, with Nervous mm-hmm. White Boy. Did you ever have a problem with, you know, aside from those two moments, were you butting up against those all the time? And are you projecting, too, like, what's mom going to think of this? Or what's dad going to think about this? Yeah, at the time I was uh, nervous about how, funny nervous, yes. how, about <laughs> how it was going to be received in my family and whatnot. But, you know, at my age now, it's just like, you know, I subscribe to that Ricky Leacock thing, you know. You don't make people look bad. You try not to make people look bad, but you can let them make themselves look bad, and they're making that decision. Yeah. If they know the camera's on, they know the mic's on, and they're saying something or acting a certain way. So this becomes the thesis. Right. You finally suffer through the the tape-to-tape editing. (laughs) Um, Do you screen? Do you screen at, you know, all the MFA theses like we do here? Yeah, I, I screened um, a version of it for my thesis, and I, I wasn't—I didn't think it was done, but it was going to be done as far as my thesis was concerned. I think many thesis students have that feeling. Yes. But um, someone who was very dear to me walked up to me and lay her head against my chest and sobbed to the point where the whole side of my shirt was sopping wet with her tears. And I'm like, maybe I need to dial back the emotion a little bit. Wow. But you're late, you're late 20s at this point. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And you're new to this motion picture thing. Right. And you just made somebody literally sob in your arms. Yeah. I mean, what is the, that's got to be – you're never going to forget that. No. And then <laughs> – well, the next screening is the one that I really never forget. Talk about that. I, I dialed the emotion back, and I, I, I got uh, that telephone-sounding voiceover working much better. And I think I uh, got that kind of nervous edge 
that yeah. I was looking for, that uneasiness of, you know, where are the lines drawn in our society where the racists exist on the other side of them and God knows not where I live and not my family. So I got that edit done and I screened that at this Philadelphia Independent Film and Video Association screening. And within 60 seconds max of the Q&A opening up, I had a dark-skinned woman screaming at the top of her lungs at a dark-skinned man on the other side of the aisle. He was defending the film and thanking me for making it and giving a view inside the society. And she was screaming at him that everything having to do with this movie should be obliterated from the planet Earth. You didn't know this? I have not heard this story. (laughs) And then my mentor told me, like, CE, it might be 20 years before you really ever do anything with this movie. And it's funny. I'm, like, making this new version so now, yeah. 20 years later. So let's. So, so now this leads to AFI. Right. And you study there to just to – I mean, because you've gotten your MFA. Yeah, I, I, I ended up uh, – went in cinematography and, you know, thought, you know, maybe I would do that whole climb the pyramid to – you know, greatness. Is it Nervous White Boy that gets you in to AFI? Not really. I don't even think I showed any of it. Um, I showed 16 millimeter and video and stuff. I saw some I of that really early stuff once. You projected it in class one right. time. Yeah. yeah. That was cool. Um, um, so, but then at the end of the first year, when I was there, you had to be invited back for the second year. And not only was I invited back, I was... Uh, nominated for the National Eastman Cinematography Scholarship by John Alonzo, who shot oh, wow. Chinatown for Polanski, and I turned him down. I went to him. I said, John, I I don't think I'm going to learn as much shooting another 16-millimeter film as I might if I went through a year of the directing program because, you know, what I see is that a cinematographer is, you know, so critically important to a director's vision like you know you need someone they need someone who will execute what they're trying to get and they don't know all the particulars of the craft Um, and he said he thought it was a great idea and he was happy with me to turn him down and turn down that and I applied and like every all the other 10,000 20,000 applicants worldwide I just took my shot and that's when I showed them Nervous White Boy and I did hear sort of came through back channels that when it got passed to the last people making the last, uh, the final decision that like the people who were screening the work to get the bad stuff out of the way said like, it, this is really amazing. But it should be obliterated from the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, it is. It, it, it's impactful. Um, it's, and it really hasn't been publicly available in, in, in any way since then, I guess. <laughs> Well, there was a blip of a moment where um, I knew this guy, Sid Scott, who was at AFI, and Sid went back to Mississippi, where he was from, and and he started working at at John Grisham's magazine, The Oxford American, Mm. and he contacted me and said, you know, I'd really love to review Nervous White Boy in our magazine, and he he did a brilliant review, I mean, just spot on, like, didn't pull any punches, didn't try to make me, like, to glorify me or anything, just, like, looked at the film really honestly, which I think the film's trying to look very honestly, so, and at the bottom of that was, if you'd like a copy, 
And I had, I don't know, maybe a dozen people mail me a check for $24.95, and I mailed them a VHS. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) The master. I made tens of dollars on this movie. (laughs) But it's, it's, um, man, it would be nice to get that out someday, I think, because people, like... People are going to listen to this and totally are going to want to see it, and it's it's really it's really worth looking at, especially if if you just met the guy and he screens it publicly, and then right afterwards <laughs> is like, "What do you guys think?" Because yeah. <laughs> then you're like, "Hmm." I remember it was quiet after. You know, it took us maybe a few minutes, but then once we got into it, it was nothing but conversation. Like we, I think we went over time that day in class. And I loved that day. Uh, you know, it's. I think it was like, okay, I'm fully in love with teaching now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, because the conversation wasn't about f-stops and you know people hitting marks and dolly moves it was about you know ideas and crafting a story and exposing yourself and your family and like really laying yourself out there for your art and not just like hey i'm gonna be a big hollywood dude yeah and the, the 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 movie represents that to begin with i mean again that's why if anybody ever asks what i'm up to i'm just basically like well there was this murder uh, in his family, a family emergency, and it enabled all this kind of behavior. And they're just like, I want to see that. Cause I, it, maybe, maybe they're just crazy and want to see another family meltdown. I don't know. But they, they, they're, there's something immediately compelling about uh, people under pressure and, and what do they do in, in that pressure. Um, so, so you get through, so you do the directing program at AFI, right. which I remember that struck me as like, wow, that's, a, that's such a great idea. Um, but it's bold too. Like to me, it feels almost as bold as if I was like, you know, something. I'm going to study for four years. I'm going to study as an actor for four years, right? Because I plan to direct. Exactly. And that would that'd be a big time investment for me. Huge. I think it'd be spot on. Yeah. Exactly. Sort of thing. Like you need to understand your collaborators. You know, if you don't understand yourself well enough at that point, you know, go ahead and study to figure yourself out. But at some point, if you don't understand your collaborators. In this medium, I remember asking you. I said, um, "Did you when you directed? Um, obviously, you were planning to not only direct actors but also cin- mostly cinematographers. You were going to direct cinematographers. Did you use la- technical technical language with them, or did you just try to communicate? You know, this is what it should be emotionally." And he said, "Yeah, I tried to keep it on that, you know, directorially abstract level to kind of leave it up to them." Right. And uh, did you did you ever find it difficult to let go in in, in any respect? Because I've been on there have been times where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to produce and not direct, and I can't I, I can't keep my shit out of it. <laughs> like I have to be <laughs> yeah. like, look, you should do this, okay? <laughs> but uh, but what about you? Did you have that problem? Uh, you know, a couple of times. Yeah. But um, I had my I had my plate full with you know trying to get performances and you know I. I'm not a big believer that movies are what actors say to each other, but I, you know, I, I surprised a lot of people during the directing year because they thought all my stuff was going to be cinematographically whiz bang and, right, right. and and empty, and it ended up not being very whiz bang and very heartfelt and very. They got praise for my writing for the two projects that I wrote and and performances on all three. Like I found an actor that was recommended to me by a, a, a working Hollywood actress as a dear friend. And I actually paid his SAG fee so that he could act for me in my first project. And then, of course, I used him in the other three because I wanted to get my money's worth. Yeah. And he's a damn good actor. It would be hard to call you a cinematographer, I think. Like, it, it, even though that's kind of what you can best sell yourself as, I right. think. It's, I mean, you, you, you're a poet, you're a photographer, uh, you're a writer, 
um, you're a voice actor, apparently. You did a little voice acting at one point. I'm a cook. <laughs> you're a cook? Oh, damn I'm a cook. thief. I'm a wife. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, you, you've, you've spun a lot of plates over the years, I would say. Um, so this, this, of course, leads to L.A., because that's what we're supposed to do. And, and that lasts for a while. You, you, work, you work as a cinematographer for a long while. Uh, cinematographer, camera operator, uh, gaffer slash IMDb says lighting. electric department. See, electric department. They, they, they just lump you in there. Yeah, I never maintained that. Yeah. And I looked, somebody sent me a link to me recently, and it's been cut down even more. And oh, it's really? like There's like four things listed, and it's like, you know, whatever. That, yeah. that whole like maintaining your image thing was never me. That's why I'm not there and doing it. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I shot stuff, I operated camera, I did a lot of lighting and I came to understand like a systems approach to big shoots and whatnot that I'm still making use of in teaching and and in my own filmmaking. Like what, what, for instance, when you say systems approach for anybody who's not in film school. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that you would like to think with a school like Emerson that has uh, a soundstage is that you know you're really going to understand how a, you leave understanding how a soundstage really works? Well, until you've rigged a soundstage to function as a soundstage, where you provide the power to the dimmers and you provide the cold control circuit to the dimmers, and then you plug the lights to the dimmers and you plug the dimmer board to the dimmers, and then someone's pushing buttons and twiddling knobs and moving levers and pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But you know, ultimately, I pulled off something for the new movie in my advanced cinematography class in the spring. And all of the students, without exception in that class, were like, thank you. I feel like I know what it means to work professionally now. And not only that, I'm so proud of what we did Mm. because it wasn't just a class exercise, but it had purpose toward being in a film. Yeah, I was worried about that. I was like, I felt like I was using. You're paying tuition to be my slave. Right, like right, you're right. you're worse than a slave. You're paying to work for me. But it turned out to be way more just mutualistic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they were they were totally psyched. And they were there for hours. Oh yeah, it was. It was. A, it was it's a, it's a very complex shot. Um, that ultimately, did you take it a lot of times, or I should I should describe what it was. Um, so we're gonna we'll talk about this a little bit more in a in a bit when we get there. But uh, C has been developing. What started out, you could call it nervous white boy two o, um, where you know it's it's all these years later. Kind of, I think the nugget of it was people ask when they watch the movie today, uh, how did Casey turn out? You know, what's Casey's deal? How's he doing? Uh, how wh- wh- what happened to all these people? And 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 Casey is is not only um, old enough to speak for himself. He's my age. Uh, he, he's also very intelligent and and uh, and somebody. Uh, worth taking a look at, and it turned out that he had never seen the movie before. So CE took out a, a a camcorder and shot his brother, mother, and Casey, all of whom are uh, featured in the original Nervous White Boy pretty heavily, um, watching the movie, and then started to think about how what opportunities are there to kind of insert the watching of meaningfully into watching the original. And it started out with let's keep the integrity of the the original because. Uh, that you know that that was a, an important snapshot, and I don't want to dismantle that. And then more and more and more, you became brave, and and going. This is the this is the point in my life that I want to, I want to look real closely at this. 
you know, gone are the days of being careful or, or quote unquote responsible about the way you want to treat everybody. This is going to be CE's movie and the way CE sees it. Um, and that's when, you know, I, I came in as, as something of an editor, a collaborator, you know, technical assistance, however we can kind of get it done to help start this engine. Because it was something I really believed in. Colleague and fellow filmmaker primarily. Yeah. That's but yeah, you're good with tech stuff. But Call it that. Um, and that's when we started coming up, well, what else could, you know, it's, it, there, there's a lot more than just watching people watch a movie. There's, you know, you started to think about your dreams and your nightmares and, and how they hook back into that movie. And, um, you know, the, these kind of visual manifestations started coming out of it. So the shot that we're talking about is it kind of opens the film, and this is still in a very malleable state, really, um, which you see he's been keeping this all very malleable, very, like, moldable, and we can do whatever the hell we want with this, which is really weird in a way and by weird i mean those opportunities aren't normally there when making a film there's there's some kind of structure there's some kind of script that you're supposed to keep to or there's something you're supposed to do there's supposed as there's no supposed as with this movie yeah. um I'm supposed to make a good movie yeah exactly exactly uh but it's it's this it's this thing that you know the one take that goes around the entire sound stage you don't know it's a sound stage it's just a space um looking at all of these photos from not only the people featured in the original from the time, but also some of their their ancestry. Mm-hmm. You you go through a, a full day. You start yeah, yeah. you start live action in a bedroom at midnight, and but as you pan off of the live action, you pan into dawn, and then into sunrise, and then in through the morning, and then through lunchtime, and you're going past you know yes. food on a table, and then in mid early afternoon, a thunderstorm blows up, and you know the power goes out, and the lightning's flashing, and the thunder's crackling. Um, and then the sun comes back out, and we watch the sunset, and you pan through dusk and into another bedroom, live action at midnight, and you go through 24 hours. So what goes into the planning of a shot like that? Choosing the 22 photos, getting them printed to a really high quality, that are, and they're printed so that they're looked at under studio tungsten light, not just any light coming through a window, but very specific light. Um, the specific frames that they're in. What are they sitting on? Are they sitting on a bale of hay? Is yeah. production design? Are they sitting on a table with cornbread and ham? Um, but then technically, it's like, okay, so the camera is going to move, I guess, a good 80 feet, 100 feet in the course of the shot, 270 degrees of view. Um, and so I went in months in advance of the shot and laid all the dolly track we had available out to see like how I could best use the space that opened my mind up to camera and lensing and I had a good idea of like you know I knew the camera I was going to use but then I was very close to being certain of the exact lens that I wanted to use Um, and I did want it to be a single lens non-zooming non-changing frame size Meaning camera motion and distance from the photos and right. space between the photos and the speed of the camera all become really important. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's all like interrelated. And then it became like, okay, so that's all. Look at what we're looking at now, how we're seeing it, like this, this change from midnight to dawn to sunrise and all the way through on a whole day with lightning and, you know, I had to, all that equipment had to be geared, you know, put in place and yeah. someone had to know how to control it at the exact moment it needed to be controlled. 
And so we actually made an edit and final cut of that section of the movie as I then conceived of it, and that got played in speakers out loud in the studio. So the camera operating team and the dimming team and the lightning-making team all could see a monitor and see exactly what was going on, and it was being driven by the bits of dialogue lifted from Nervous White Boy that were ultimately going to be put in place over those specific photos. And then the next mind-blowing thing was, as I conceived of it Mm. being used the way we shot it, simultaneously I was conceiving of using it in reverse Yes. at the same time so that it... Nothing seems different. You seem like sunset becomes sunrise. Lunch is lunch. Yep. Lightning storms in the morning, not in the afternoon. It should work just as well. Yeah. yeah. And it did. Yep. Um, but it, it was a, a lot of uh, systems approach to camera and lighting to to pull it off. And you, a moment ago, asked, like, you know, did it take, did you have to shoot it a lot? Yeah. And when you when you know what you're doing, you have to prep it a lot and not shoot it a lot. Right. And we we worked for a day and a half getting the shot. And when we started setting up, the morning we started setting up, I said, I think we'll get this on the fourth take. And we got it on the fifth. So I was very proud that, you know, the experience that I had, like, made me... Because some people set up something like that and never stop shooting. They're just yeah. so paranoid that they didn't get it. And at right. some point, you're like, it's good enough. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. Oh, that's... that's You're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a... Sometimes I look... Ba- you know... It, whether or not I'm successful is for somebody else to say, but I think that one thing I have done is I've finished movies. I've, fin- I've finished them, you know, and that's saying a lot sometimes, especially for low budget. And I think it has a lot to do with with um, being confident with compromise, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and knowing what's important, focusing on that, making sure you get that, and kind of allowing everything else to lax. I think perfectionism is not a filmmaker's game unless you're Stanley Kubrick, and nobody watches a Kubrick movie and says. Now I want to become a filmmaker. <laughs> like nobody does that. So uh, they watch crap and go, oh, if that counts, maybe I can do it. Right. Um, and that's why I'm here. Um, <laughs> right. But, but I uh, – no, I remember you – I got a cool text. Um, I, it was lunchtime. I, I didn't even I, – I think I had forgotten that you were shooting that day. And you are like, come check it out. I was like, come check what out? And I, I go over to the, the soundstage and there you are with an entire classroom full of people. And, and I think that you're – I think your calmness and excitement is is uh, contagious. Um, everybody else seemed to be at, actually operating at your level of of both excitement, precision, and calmness. Uh, I've, I've I've been to my share of student productions that are a lot more spazzy than that. You know, yeah. and it, it was in no way spazzy. A lot of respect for the equipment uh, and and for the space, and also for the project. Um, and everybody seemed on the ball. And it wasn't until that was at noon. And I didn't get the text until 9 p.m. that was like, done. <laughs> and that's what I was like, oh, And that was shit. the second day of working. Oh, is that right? <laughs> the first day was rigging. I look over at my wife and I'm just like, they just finished. It, uh, it was, I was with uh, Sean Clark because you had invited Sean as well. Sean is a, it, 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 for, for his age, for his, you know, whatever. Um, and pretty incredible visualist. I mean, mm-hmm. re- really, and... And obviously just loves making movies mm-hmm. because he's on every goddamn set. And he's too <laughs> talented to be on so many projects. And all that shows me is that he's an awesome guy and yeah. that he loves mo- making movies. Yeah. But he uh, he goes up to me. He's, he's soft-spoken, much bigger than me. Uh, and uh, and I hadn't up to that point. We hadn't had a lot of conversations. Since then, we've gotten to know each other quite well. He comes over and he leans over and he goes, they're not going to be done until like 9 o'clock. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, uh, 
th- thinking that it was it was probably only going to be a few more hours. Nine o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow. Did they did did, did they all keep uh, keep that same level of of energy? Were they okay? Oh yeah, uh, you know, <clears throat> teaching is so wonderful to me, and you know the the students seem to enjoy me as a teacher. But you know, one of the things that I think they crave is to be taught how to not engage in student film chaos. Yes. And today I just taught, told one of my classes, like, it's up to you, you know. If you're standing a foot away from someone and you're talking this loud, you know, if everyone's doing that, it's a loud set. If you're yeah. a foot away from someone, you can be talking like this and they can still hear you. Yeah. And you're not contributing to the chaos. And it's your responsibility. And so that set was, like, so professional. Mm-hmm. And one person came in with a very, like, a boy with a very deep, bassy voice. And I love him. He's a great guy. He shot the making of and did an incredible job, incredible job with the making of. But he's talking over here. And I'm like, dude, they can hear you in Siberia right now. You know, <laughs> learn to whisper. Take he it goes, down. it's a curse. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like he took it well. Yeah, I, I, I think tone and setting a tone as, as a director is, has had a lot to do with um, – well, with with whether or not people work with me again, or they enjoy working with me at the time, I I, I, try, I told the the student filmmakers in Australia, I was like, because they wanted to know what were the sets like, because to them, I guess it looked like a very like professional film, because at that stage in their lives, they're looking for like, is it a real movie or not a real movie? Right. Which like you you are way past, and I'm way past, but they they still looked at that, as, you know, they were, they were looking for those clues that give you away as being cheap or not, and um, I said honestly, I I. You know, I kept the sets in, in in a way that I've tried to make it seem like a like a hangout to to a certain extent. Like, mm-hmm. you know, where 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 we want to do something productive, but we're all, we're here ultimately to have fun. The truth is, I'm str- I'm totally stressed. I, I I walk in going like I don't know what I'm shooting today, but I uh, but I try to keep that completely in. And I ask the guy with the camera just to worry about the camera. You know, I ask the actors just to worry about the characters and. Um, you know, we, we, we don't overshoot to the point that it's stressful. And, you know, Sexually Frank was 16 days. And um, and people hear that and they're like, is, was it really only 16? I was like, God damn it. I, I did not have the patience to go any more than that. Uh, it felt it felt right for just the amount of time that it was. So you uh, so Boston is a strange move from if you if you're if, if it's Baton Rouge, L.A., that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, f- from home, school, career mm-hmm. and then Boston. Which ends in, in teaching at two schools. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Well, I, you know, I was in Philly, so I, I thought I had lived in the Northeast. Yes. <laughs> they would say that. East Coast, Philly. I'm like, really? <laughs> I guess technically. Yeah. Southern yeah, New yeah, England. Yeah. Southern New England. Yeah. Um, trust me, the winters are very different here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, my mom got... We went through some medical stuff. It took about a year to for her to get through. And she asked me to come home from L.A. and my life and career to help her through a little surgery that turned into a big deal. And, oh, wow. and, and like, But in the time just before I went home to care for her, I was talking to all my colleagues just as, as you do on set. You know, and tell you, you're just friends hanging out and you're outside the stage while the little red light's rolling and... You know, the, the the person that you think you know really well, you think like, oh, he's very happy, married, kids, home. And he goes, I'd get off this treadmill if I could. If I knew how, I'd get off this. 
And then, you know, at lunch, you're talking to a key grip, and there's like, man, I'd give anything if I could get out of this industry. But, you know, Man Ray called L.A. a beautiful prison. <laughs> and, and Woody Allen said to his niece uh, in one movie, like, you know, don't, don't go into show business. It's a dog-eat-dog business. No, it's worse than that. This dog doesn't other, return other dog's phone calls. <laughs> and I so was only there, there for six months. Yeah, it was plenty. And, and there's just like this level of putting up with the misery for the glory, like, yes. you know, the sports cars and sunglasses, um, perception, which is so wrong that work days are really hard and everything. So at the end of the year of caring for my mom, I was like, I'm off the treadmill. Yeah. And I was in a relationship with someone who had moved to Boston and I, I had come up and spent some time in, you know, the pre the previous two winters. So I, I came up here, and I always knew I wanted to teach. My mom taught till she was 77. She's one of my heroes. You've and been hanging on to an MFA for all this time. Yeah. yeah. And, and I've always been told that I'm a great teacher, a great mentor, and a great teacher. And I, but I wanted to do it formally. And it was just amazing. I, I called someone, uh, a professor from Temple who knew me, told me to call Emerson. And I called him on a Friday and had a job offer on Monday. Oh, wow. You know, in this economy, I was pretty those. You're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> we'll not argue. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's huge. There's a, there was a, I, I, I've been hearing about open positions here and elsewhere where they're, they're getting 200 applicants from around the world, people willing to make moves, but just because it's. I just think I'm the luckiest son of a bitch that's ever lived. It could be. And it's like, I just, it's just always right time, right place, it feels like. Every time I've wanted to do anything, it's just like, I mean, you know, you talk about, oh, yeah, I went to FI and cinematography and directing. They hardly ever let anyone change disciplines. Yeah. <clears throat> they just don't. And, uh, you know, and the, and the applicants are worldwide. You know, you're up against you know, tens of thousands of people from all over the world. And I don't know. I just feel blessed. Does te did teaching change you as an artist? Because it obviously activated you know, returning to nervous white boy, pursuing kind of individualistic, or not so much. It, I don't, I don't think it it changed me as an artist, as it just allowed me to be back in an environment where I had the time to actually do it. Yeah, you know, people, you people, bit. people who say, you know, I want to work in the film industry, I want to be a filmmaker. I'm like, those are diametrically opposed things, yeah. typically. You know, you go. You working in the film industry. I mean, you you. It's it's like brutally long, hard hours. I worked twenty six hours on one straight, twenty six hours straight on a Moby Gwen Stefani music video. You're driving home, hoping you don't kill yourself and other people. You're so tired. Who's got time to write a script? Who's going to check out gear? Who's going to make a movie? It's the reason why I do photography for me and not commercially. Yeah, I want it to be my art form and not like you know. You'll you're going to have to check out this new feature that Jeff and I are cooking up because it it, it it's all about. Um, Doing something else to do something else. It, it's it's, and striking that you know because I think I think that so often we, uh, you know we 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 kind of adopt or borrow our, our ideas of what success means, and then even if we reshape them or, or renegotiate them and go yeah actually this would be success to me, realistically if somebody handed you that original thing that thing that child you think success is mm -hmm. you you would you would jump at it and um, yeah our. our we're, we're, we're almost making a don't follow your dreams movie. <laughs> yeah. The, well, the whole thing of like Tarantino working at a video rental store and just watching film after film after film. Yeah. An you know, opportunity make, that you wouldn't have had when you were working 26 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, with his, you know, 
critical intelligence being exercised watching them. And then you get like a Robert Rodriguez, you know, it's like I have a turtle and a guitar and a motorcycle and a barn. Let's make a movie with Mm -hmm. those four things. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that went through my mind related to this is a little while ago you were talking about sexually frank and your budget and whatnot. Uh, I was thinking... More money was spent on my one shot than for your whole film. <laughs> okay, that could be. I know that we've spent more money just flying to places to show the movie <laughs> no. than to make the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kudos to that. I yeah. mean, that's like that's the ultimate compliment that you know to, to exercise your creativity in this day and age. Really, a minimal amount of gear and perception and creativity and talent and drive. I mean, make a bad movie, but you know, make it. I, mean. I, I think so. I, I've I've said it many times, but it's I, I attribute so much of it to that initial effort that I made, that first movie, where I was too stupid to know that you know that movies cost money, and it's it was by kind of like you know driving through that and suffering through that. It was like, oh, it's possible. And then from that point on, it enabled me. But I see people who have got, who haven't. You didn't go through that, and so they're like, "Well, I want to make a film, but I know how much it's going to mean. You know, I, I know I'm going to have to take out a second mortgage and all this kind of stuff." I'm like, "Oh God, don't do it! Please don't do it because it won't make a dime. But you can totally make a great movie for nothing. Um, you just have to actually have something to say." Coppola might have something to say again because of Apocalypse Now and putting his whole you know house and significant property up. Yeah, you know, and all yeah. that stuff. All the Godfather but, cash. But, you know, what you're saying by the odds is ultimately true. You know, like most people, like I knew a guy in L.A., the worst film I ever worked on. I probably shouldn't say that title. Okay. But it was about the 16th Amendment to the Constitution. And this guy was an anesthesiologist, black belt martial artist. He had designed and built his own experimental airplane and had his own pilot's license. I mean, he was like a really impressive guy who you know, had studied and learned to do these various things. And then he takes this huge pile of his money that was supposed to buy his family a bigger home because they were having more kids and da-da-da-da-da. And he put it into making the worst feature ever where he was the lead actor. He had never taken an acting lesson. He knew the alphabet, so of course he's a writer, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like this, like, painful, painful to, to be around and to watch, like... But it paid cash money. <laughs> At what price? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it didn't pay me much cash money, yeah. and it was serious. It was like, you know, it's like, dude, really? Like you, I have so much respect for you that you worked so hard and studied and learned those other things, and yet you're so arrogantly assuming that you know how to be a director, you know how to be this and be that. And it's it was like a very expensive film school for him. You know, and I wish he had found some way to do it more in your model. Like, you know, it's like just well, I mean, make you, something. You, you bring up Coppola, and, and he's also the same guy who I believe was on the set of Apocalypse Now, who's saying it was right when home video camcorders were coming out, and he was like, you know, 16 years from now, a fat girl from Kentucky is going to make something that blows us away, and she's going to do it, you know, in her backyard. And and it's only then he, he said that, that, the medium, the uh, you know, the the art of filmmaking is going to be liberated, and I took that to mean basically, you know, if if you uh, if you keep it expensive, if you keep it something with all these walls, you know, you, you won't be able to think freely and creatively about film, which I think has so much to do with 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 the film, the project that we've been working on, which is like it's 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 constrained by nothing at this point, as far as I'm concerned, available computer equipment, mm-hmm. you know, that that that's what it's constrained by. <laughs> 
perfectly available. Um, talk a little bit, we're, we're going to end it, but talk a little bit about the watching of and where that's taken you up to this point and where you are with the project right now. <clears throat> okay. Um, I guess, you know, the, the working title was originally A Nervous White Boy Grows Up. I never really liked it, but, you know, it's good to have a working title. It's better than saying the thing we're working on. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> But then it, for a very brief time, it shifted to uh, From Where I Stand, all small letters. So it was like all small letters specifically to be like, I'm not like the Southern Johnny Reb, like, I'll take my stand, he live and die, Dixie. You know, this whole, like, yeah, you yeah. know, got a, something up my ass. Got, a, you know, mad about something, not sure what. Um, but then very recently, uh, the working title has shifted to Dreams and Dream, Dreams and Dreamers, Nights and Nightmares. And cinema in its pure form is very much like the experience of dreaming. You know, you're kind of in this dark, floaty space, yeah. and it sort of feels like it's happening on a screen in a way. Projecting and, images. Yeah, you know. yeah. And, and, you know, delving hopefully into you know, subconscious and fears and aspirations and relationships and... You don't really feel like you're in control of a dream either. You feel like you're kind of witnessing it to some extent. Right, yeah. right, right. So so when I first cut something together that was working for me with the watching of and the original, um, when it f- turned when it ultimately became more dreamlike was when you cut the heathern sequence and it like opened me up to like, Oh my God, like I didn't realize how free I am. This is the ultimate putting Casey in the back seat when he's actually not there. I'm putting stuff on the television and my mom's saying stuff about what's on the television when what's on the television got added in and post. Right. But eventually you see what was actually on the television and it makes it even more meaningful to see the actual so it's like trying to enter this dream space, this nightmare space. I mean, my family went through a, a nightmare in this, you know, horrible event of a dear man getting brutally murdered for, from what I can tell, like no reason. I don't know. Maybe he said something to this guy or insulted the guy's parents. I don't know what. Yeah. Could have happened. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. But at the same time, I don't know of anything that happened. Right. Um, but right now, the the watching of... I think is particularly poignant to be played out in this realm of the unconscious because Casey was in his formative years. He is watching this movie for the first time and you're watching him watch it for the first time and he does not remember anything about the experience. He doesn't remember Uncle Jesse at all. He doesn't remember any of the things that happened that he's watching at all. Right. He was two. Right. Yet, those things are the deepest yeah. things that have influenced him. Right. Doesn't mean he didn't absorb it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, getting at that is why I think, you know, dreaming and having a nightmare is like the perfect, you know, approach to take. And so I'm trying to, like, you know, you start and you meet these people. And they're in this room, and this DVD starts being played. And actually, there's a comment about, oh, it's on DVD? I thought it was a VHS. And like the yeah. whole like, placing it in time yeah. technologically. There's a comment that Casey made when he was watching the, the, the DVD of Nervous White Boy, yeah. And, but, and then, the but then, you know, uh, the watching of 
starts to merge with the film itself. And then the other things that I'm shooting that are outside of the original movie or the watching of in the living room where the TV's on are all fusing together to try to create this, you know, dreamlike sense of mm. a family struggling not just with what's on the surface, but also what underlies our relationships. Like, you know, you're conservative and I'm liberal. Sure. You know, you think, you know, racist thought is is okay and I have a problem with it. And so that's, you know, I want it to be unsettling. And at the same time, like at the end of the day, you know, nervous white boy, the, that, that, article that that review in uh, the Oxford American was so spot on because it, it finally kind of concluded like wow this man's being very judgmental and and like there's a lot of love in this family and acceptance mm. and I, I want this to to be the same way I mean there's a sadness in the end that you know we can't all be on the same page and have the same dream of human acceptance of all humanity you know, there's this tribalism that I think is a real deep problem. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of this movie, it's like I cut Casey more slack than I have cut anyone in my life because, you know, his mother visited me in Philadelphia when I was working on my MFA when he was in her belly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've known him every minute of his life. Then one day I was thinking about that. And how my own artwork, I hadn't learned the point of my own artwork. Because it's like, okay, Casey was tabula rasa. And I watched him through his formative years. And I made this film with all this specificity of his life that he didn't remember at all. Yeah. I couldn't be present when my father was that age. It's not possible. Right. But he was also tabula rasa. Sure. He was also programmed in his formative years. Mm-hmm. And if I don't, in, as, as much, as difficult as it is, if I don't do my best to cut my father the same slack, then I really haven't learned the point of my own artwork. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to do when you really disagree with someone. But, you know, ultimately, people, very few people question their programming. The hardest thing I've ever done is question the racist programming that I was exposed to before I could be thinking of what was, I didn't even know what was going on in my life, but all this stuff was being pushed into me just because it was in my environment. Yeah. And so I, I'm really happy to, to be far enough through that effort and past that effort to say that I can cut myself some slack now but I, I find it amazing in our society these days that the people who are saying, I'm not racist at all. Yeah. And I'm saying, I've worked on that harder than anybody I know, and I won't say that I'm not racist. So and it only means. You don't mean, yeah. sh- that doesn't mean shit to me, pal. Right, right. C.E. Courtney, ladies and gentlemen. A, a, a guy that's a privilege to know, and I really do mean that. Awesome friend, great teacher. Um, and thanks thank, for sitting down and thank talking. Thank you, Frankie. It's, I feel the same about you. It's really... You know, I, I all, all my students, I consider them colleagues, but, you know, you've really um, risen to that by your active involvement. I don't know, I, would, I don't think I would be this far along with this version of this movie, which is very difficult to make in many ways, if it hadn't been for your encouragement to, like, you know, lock on, take hold, you can do it, how can I help? But you do that with a lot of people, you help a lot of filmmakers, you're, like, destined to be a a great teacher too when hopefully you can that means a lot thank you so much um, and thanks for talking about it too because I know that you like to 
especially a movie like this, keep a little distant from it, let it kind of live its own life. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, you, you, you've been talking about getting this thing when it's, when it's all said and done in a theater to really kind of, to, to, you know, that, that's really its only home if it's going to be dreams and dreamers, nights and nightmares. Yeah. I, I was just at the MFA yesterday and there's some stuff that's being screened over there as part of fine art exhibits. And it makes, it made the point to me that I do think it's the right approach that, yeah. You know, even though it's like four, three bad video sources and masters, ultimately what it all blends into is is a work that deserves that canvas of the darkness and the subconscious. Let's hope that somebody wants it obliterated when it's done. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah! Thanks so much, man. Thank we'll you. We'll do this again sometime. Cool.